Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Punk Rock MBA podcast. Joey, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. I know you've uh, got a lot of stuff going on. Are you allowed to say what you're working on right now? Yes. Uh, and thanks for having me. Um, I'm working on Conquer Divide's new album right now. Uh, we're, we're wrapping up the final second half. We recorded the second half a year ago, actually. So and that's then, the stuff with the singles that are out now and whatnot. Yeah. And, uh, and then, you know, my wife, she writes a lot of the stuff, so she wanted to take more time to write. And so we, we spent the next year writing and then now, now we're recording all that content. Cool. Well, how much are you actually in the studio these days? I know you've kind of made a few returns and then not returned. And where are you at with that these days? Well, you know, a lot of it actually stemmed from the fact that I just didn't want to be living with bands anymore. And these days, um, when you're working in the type of music that I work on, which is sort of like rock, metal, and metalcore, you kind of need to have like a setup where the band can come live with you. And I don't know, I kind of always purposely put myself in a place where like there's no hotel nearby. So like, you know, just kind of how it works out. Right. And, and so it's just like, okay, well, if I want to be working, then the band has to be living with me. And then that means X, Y, Z. And then we have to have so many computers and then there has to be a place for the engineer to, to sleep. And then it just on and on and on and all these things. And like you so, got to run a hotel as much as a studio and who wants to do that? Exactly. And so I wanted to take a break from that. And so I did. And um, I was pursuing other things. And, and then when I got back into recording, uh, it kind of ended up working out pretty nicely because my engineer never stopped. Uh, the, the guy that worked for me, he kind of just kept going and, and growing and, and leveling up on his own. Was that and Nick or someone else? Nick M- Matskos is the, is the main engineer that I have been working with for years now. I, I think we calculated it at like six years recently. So, oh, wow. But that also includes the, the years that I was, took a break. So he lived in Wyandotte, Michigan and I lived in uh, uh, Manchester, Michigan. So it was not super far. I think that's like a 45 minute drive if I'm not mistaken. So I was like, Oh, okay, well I guess I can record again now because all I got to do is like just drive down the road and then, and off we go. So we started doing that for a little bit and I started producing like the new attack attack stuff. I did uh, a band called GFM from Florida, um, a couple other projects. And then uh, Nick decided to move to Grand Rapids, which is three hours away. So then I had to now you're retired again. 
Yeah, <laughs> I stepped back a little bit because I was like, okay, now I don't, I don't have the infrastructure anymore. But now I have some projects that I just can't refuse. You know, I've got, I still am working with Attack Attack. I'm just, I obviously have to work with my wife, and so we kind of just try to make the travel work. We come into Grand Rapids and we stay for however long we need to stay to do the project, and then we go back. And so that's kind of where uh, I've been here for like two and a half weeks now. Um, and so that's what we're doing right now. Got it. So you're still in the game for the right things, just not necessarily on the grind like you were, you know, in your heyday. Yeah. You know, I, I really, uh, notice it when I get about a week deep, I'm just like, oh man, you know, things are piling up because I have so much other stuff going on. So when I am working on a record, it's pretty taxing because, you know, it's like, like today, for example, we were doing vocals and I got a phone call like every, like almost seven minutes. So I'm like listening to a vocal take and then I'm going upstairs and taking a phone call and then I'm coming back down and I'm like, okay, what'd you guys do where I wasn't, when I wasn't here? And like, it just, it, it all piles up, you know? So it, it's pretty hard. Um, unfortunately, I'm just not in a position to be able to like dedicate 100% of my attention span to a record anymore. I've, I'm doing too many things. Um, but I think well, that I, I, I want to talk about the old days for people because they're going to be interested in that. But can you tell people what the other things are that you do that, you know, aside from recording? Because I'm sure some people, you know, JST and whatnot, I'm sure there's a lot of people who don't know about that. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, I'll give you a, like sort of a rundown of what I've done over the last couple of weeks. So I have a company called Joey Sturgis Tones. We create audio plugins for musicians, producers, engineers. And um, so like over the past week, we've been developing like four new plugins. And so I'm reviewing those. I'm, I'm, I'm making changes, tweaks to the designs. I'm managing uh, the marketing team and the content team as well. So I kind of oversee both of those teams, make sure that they're um, doing what they're supposed to be doing and, and giving them the support that they need if there's anything. Um, also, I uh, am a co-founder of Unstoppable Recording Machine, which is, I think your viewers know that's where you work. <laughs> yes. Yes. So uh, uh, doing some finance stuff there, we're, we're on track to, you know, cleaning up how we pay for expenses. We're doing accounting things. We're, um, you know, all, all of those fun mathematical finance things that we do. And then I'm also starting a new company. I can't really talk much about that yet, but it it has to do with travel because I am very passionate about travel. It's sort of like a, a an eye-opening thing to do in your lifetime and and so I I'm tr I'm passionate about creating travel experiences and things like that and so I I've, I've actually um been on the phone a lot to to sort of make that uh transition as well. Um and then on top of that, you have your normal everyday life, right? And for me, that's a little chaotic because I also am in real estate. So I have properties, there's things happening at all the properties. You have people calling you saying like, hey, we need to paint like the door trim. Like, you, you know, mean you don't just get to sit around and do nothing and collect their money every month. <laughs> that's what that's what uh, Grant Cardone would lead you to believe. Um, but uh, he probably has like a thousand people working for him. Yeah. So. <laughs> God, I heard I heard him on uh, this podcast, short story long. He is such a fucking psycho. Like I, I like a lot of what he has to say, but uh, they were asking about managing people, and uh, he's like, "Well, what do you do? 
what do you do if you have an employee that's not performing well? He's like, I take them out in front of the whole company and I fucking fire them right in front of everybody. Just cut their fucking head off. And just say, anybody else want to be next? <laughs> and the guy started laughing. He's like, are you serious? You really do that? <laughs> He's like, hell yeah, I do. <laughs> Can you fucking imagine doing that? <laughs> I mean, there's a right and a wrong way to do everything, you know? Listen, Joey, uh, I, I think you know you haven't, you haven't been uh, doing a great job lately. And uh, I'd like to ask you to leave right now in front of the whole company. And you're like, well, all right, I guess I'll go now. Well, uh, it, I, it, I can't even imagine that actually happening in real life. Like I've never been witness to anything like that before. Yeah, I don't think I have either. But uh, cool. Well, I want to talk about all those things, but I want to give people some some juicy stuff about the old days because I'm sure that there's a lot of people watching who are listening who are big fans of the stuff you've done. I guess my main uh, the main main thing I'd be curious to hear about, we've talked about this before, but I'm sure it'll be new to a lot of people is, you know, to me, you really defined that like super clean, precise sound that I, I would say is still the template. I mean, there's people like Andy Sneap and stuff who are a big part of that too. But as far as like, you know, really modern metalcore, you know, you define that sound and there's really nothing like it before. Like the same band, there there were some of the same bands who had recorded with other people before and they just sound like five times better with you than they did with anybody else. I won't name names, obviously, but people can can look them up. What kind of, uh, sorry, my voice just cracked because I got, I got choked in a jiu-jitsu tournament over the weekend and my voice is still fucked up. What kind of gave you the vision for that? I mean, I know your personality now, so it makes sense to me, but what initially sort of gave you that idea of like, what if everything was just absolutely perfect? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it really just is tied to my nature and my uh, personality because I guess growing up, I had a computer as early as I possibly could. I was on the internet as early as I could. If you're using a computer at that age, and I think I, I want to say, I don't know, maybe I was like 15 or something, you start to um, notice uh, the perfection that's in the computer. And you start to, uh, I guess, maybe if you're like me, you, you obsess about that. And, and Like, oh, these waveforms should all be the same, but they're not. Yeah, right. Things like that, or even like, you know, it could be a computer game. And maybe you're like playing the same level over and over, but you obsess about like when you press the jump button. And and so like I did shit like that with like Super Mario Brothers 3. Like I'd play the crap out of that game and I would like, you know, try to get the jump, the, all the jumps timed perfectly to like- get I could see you ball. being into speed runs. Yeah, exactly. Like speed <laughs> running or like, you know, I used to play Quake 2 in my high school days and I would, um, you know, try to- Ma like master the levels so that I could like time all my rocket jumps and I could get across the map really fast. And so I think I just have like an obsessive nature. Um, and, and that, that carries across through everything. And when I started to learn how to record, I recognized that there were things that weren't perfect. Like it was like, I would be like, well, the drummer didn't play the beat perfectly. So how can I fix that? Or, you know, this guitar part is too slow. How do I make it faster? And so you start to like learn that there are tools in the computer to manipulate things. And then you start to learn that like, oh, if I want to sound like the things that I'm hearing online or I want, or the things I'm hearing in my head, like I actually need to learn how to make these manipulations work for me to get to the result that I uh, envision. And I, I think that that vision actually came from just like the references all around me, right? Like, 
on back in the good old days, we had a, a forum called Ultimate Metal Forum, and Sneep had a forum of his own on there. Yeah. And there was a big community around this app called um, SoundClick. And SoundClick was a lot like SoundCloud, where you basically just upload audio files and then people can listen to them. And it's easier than like having to like upload a, a sound file, then someone download it, and then they like have to open it in like Winamp or whatever. This is just like right. you load an HTML page and click play, and then the audio happens, right? So people would uh, post their mixes, and you know, you could be like, oh crap, like there's a other guy in this forum, and he just posted his mix, and it sounds better than mine. And so it like encourages you and inspires you, and there's a competition nature to it. And we, that's kind of how I think I really cut my teeth was like, because you could be sitting there in front of the monitors in your room and be like, this sounds amazing. And then you hear somebody others, somebody else's mix and you're like, oh, wow, that's a lot better than mine. And I think, you know, it was a combination of being able to hear that I wasn't doing the, the job that I wanted to be doing and also having other people sort of in the same, you know, you could tell like they were kind of the same age. They were also sort of working from also from bedroom situations. You know, it was like, oh, these people like I have a lot in common with these people and they're being able to do a little bit of a better job than me. So let me figure out what where I'm falling short and how I can like correct for that. And that's this is like 2004 or five, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then your breakthrough recordings came around like 2007 or so, right? 2006, 2007. Which even even then, I mean, I, I'm sure you would agree those weren't your best work. But even then, they were still way better than what pretty much everybody else was doing. Just so much cleaner and tighter, and just just nobody had made this kind of music sound that good before. What kind of reactions did you get when you were sharing some of those early recordings? Like, were bands just totally blown away that that shit could sound that good? Yeah, I mean, it was the the main business driver. We didn't ever do any advertising, no promoting whatsoever. We never even tried. It was just people heard a, a song and then there would be, you know, they would be like, uh, oh, who did that? And like, oh, it's, right. you know, weird guy in Indiana. And like, blah, blah, right. blah. And like, oh, we got to go work with him, you know? And so it was just word of mouth for so long. I mean, for years and years and years. Actually, I think, all of its word of mouth because yeah. we literally was was the devil wars Prada like the thing that really put you on the map or was there something before that i i think so um i mean even before the devil wars Prada, i was kind of on the like local map like in the tri-state area so i lived um like if if this is indiana i kind of lived like here which is like next to ohio so if you just shoot across like this you get into a town called oxford which is where there's like a college there and there's like a community around there and um and so there were a lot of local bands from ohio coming over there were some people coming up from kentucky i had some bands from indiana i had some bands from illinois and i was kind of just kind of conquering that little section of the midwest and even some bands from michigan were coming down and um that was all by word of mouth and and it was just you know it the works would speak for itself we would yeah. upload it this was the thing that was that was kind of the um the the rocket fuel for it all was was MySpace and the fact that MySpace was so simple it was just PHP it was like not complicated with algorithms and all this stuff it was right. just like 
upload a track and boom, there it is. Everybody would let you spam the fuck out of everyone with bulletins Spam it with bulletins and everybody can share it and play it and put on their top eight and or whatever the hell it is. And, and so it was like, and everyone's playlists and getting millions of plays. And so that was kind of how people found out about, um, what it was. And you can even go to like a band, let's say there was a band, a hardcore band that recorded a song with me and they put it up and they don't even talk about me or say anything. There would still be like those behind the scenes conversations where people would figure out that it was, that it was me essentially. And they would find my MySpace profile and then they would, they would uh, see, I think we wrote something on the front page that was just like, here's the email address that you need to contact if you want to work with us. And that all went to Craig. Craig was my manager. Craig from Rise. Yeah, Craig Erickson from Rise Records. Yep. Right. And that's a whole story. Uh, I don't know if you want me to tell that story, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, why not? I think people would be would like to hear that. So um, when I started out, obviously, I didn't have a manager. And then um, I did a couple projects that got on Craig's radar, and one of them got signed. And then I did a couple more projects that were all, all what, on. What was side. that first project? Uh, I think the first one that was really on his radar was the Devil Wears Prada. And then, okay. then he signed them. So then it was like he was my he, he was like their record label guy. Um, and he was like kind of interacting with me. But at the same time, I, I was like kind of interacting with the band directly. I didn't really have to go like through people at that at that particular time. It's probably illegal for him to like represent the band and you <laughs> I mean, it definitely got kind of strained towards towards yeah because he's negotiating against himself in a way yeah um which is okay i you know yeah complaining i ended up in a good spot but it, there was some moments that were weird but yeah. uh yeah it was like that and then it was like before their eyes and then there was like i don't know there was a couple of other projects that i can't really remember uh, what is the nice uh gwen stacy gwen stacy Mm-hmm. And like Gwen and Stacy were like the Devil Wars Prada's friends, right? So I do a Devil Wars Prada record. They get signed to Rise Records and then the record comes out and then they're friends with Gwen Stacy and Gwen Stacy's looking for another place to maybe try and record. So they come record with me and we do a song and it's that's just how it worked. And then these bands would tour with each other and there was even MySpace tours back in the day. That's like right. MySpace Cafe and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, and those bands would all talk to each other and then that's how they would figure out Oh man, you gotta work with Joey. Like his stuff sounds awesome. Like you know, blah blah blah. And um, so, long story short, is that basically I did like two or three things uh, for that that was on Craig's radar. They were either signed to Craig or somebody that Craig knew or whatever. And so he kind of picked up on a pattern, and he could notice he was noticing that like it was all this Joey Sturgis kid from Connorsville, Indiana. So he actually reached out to me, and he was like, "I want to be your manager." And I was like, "Hell no." Uh, I've only heard bad things about managers. And so, no. <laughs> and um, he was very persistent. And then we kind of came at a crossroads where I was like, all right, well, if you think you can do all this awesome stuff for me and get me like bands all the time and you're, you know, I'm going to be paying you for that essentially, then here is like my demands. And so I gave him like a list of things that I wanted to happen in my career. And Believe it or not, he made every single thing on that list happen. And that is why I stuck with him for so long. He actually, I mean, the dude's a winner. He did it pretty fast, too. I was like, I want to do a Metal Blade album. I want to work with Adam D. I want to do this. I want to do that. It was just like, 
within a matter of like nine months, I was doing a Metal Blade album in like a matter of a year and a half. I was working with Adam D on a project. It was just like, wow, okay, you know, this is legit. And then the real big thing that he did for me was the space that I was working out of. It was a garage. It was a garage of my friend's house in the back. It was detached. And uh, I didn't own it. I had no rights to it whatsoever. I was just paying them five hundred dollars to uh, to essentially squat in this garage and do whatever I wanted to. And we kind of shared the space. But I, as I got busier and busier, like the space became unrealistic in the t- in the terms of like sharing it with them. Like, they is, want- is this the space that's in like the Attack Attack Studio videos? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and they would want to like practice in there. They're like, oh, we have a real big like showcase coming up and we want to practice and want to record. And I'd be like, a showcase. That's right. Yeah. And I was like, sorry, guys. Like, I booked six months right now, every day. <laughs> like, I don't know what you're going to do. And they're like, yeah. well, you don't have to pay us rent. Then uh, we'll just, you know, we'll do our thing and you won't have to pay us rent. And I'm like, that doesn't no. help. <laughs> like, I still got people showing up. Like they're going to be here in like 10 minutes. So yeah. can we wrap this up? Like, so yeah, basically I, I called Craig and I was like, bro, I don't really, this is the first time in my life where I don't know what to do. And he's like, just buy a house. And I was like, what do you mean? Like buy a house. I, that's not in the realm of reality. And he's like, oh, I would just pay for it. You can pay me back. And I was like, what the fuck? So that's actually how I went. I literally called up a random realtor that I found on the internet and I met with them. We, we went and looked at three houses. I picked one. I called Craig. I was like, here's the house that I picked. And he's like, all right, cool. Get all the documents. So we got all the documents and signed it. He paid cash for it. And then it was, then it was my house. And it was just, was that your cabin house or a different one? It was the different, it was the one in Indiana, which is also in the attack attack. updates. That was in that weird transition period where, I wasn't fully set up at the house. Right. So I, and I was still like transitioning out of the studio at the garage. So you'll see in some of those updates, it's like we're at some places we're in this like house with like gross purple ca- uh, carpet and like, and weird wallpaper. Like I, I had to redo the whole house when, once I got it, by the way. And then you'll see that we're in like the garage. So like we're in the garage and like recording drums. And then we're at the like house with the purple carpet. Just like, we're just there to like sleep. Right. So, because people used to have to sleep in the driveway. That's like how it went down for a long time. And then when I got the house, it was like four bedrooms with a uh, an attached garage that was like turned into like a interior, you know, part of the house. It wasn't a garage anymore. It was like part of the house, an extra room. And that's where I ended up putting the studio and everyone would sleep in the bedrooms. And it was actually kind of a perfect setup. And so that's how it kind of all started. It's so like, I, I mentioned this, a lot, but it's like still inspiring to me and important for people to hear, you know, the reality of that is that you were making these big records that sounded great and were super successful in pretty shitty conditions with, I'm guessing, you know, budgets are a fraction of what you would get later on. And you still, you know, collectively you and the bands did amazing shit. Yeah. So there's sort of like a level of like control versus like, I almost want to say like autopilot when you're recording. So like, you know, let's say you go into a room, you set up a bunch of mics on a drum set and you just like hit record and then like the drummer plays and then you hit stop. Okay. So some people just keep that. And then some people who are crazy like me cut it a thousand times and literally a thousand times. You're not exaggerating. I cut what that was just recorded, I cut it thousands of times and I move it around and I shift it and I crossfade it. 
and I move the volume up on this one snare hit and then I move the volume down on this other snare hit and then I replace this kick hit with another kick hit from over here and I move it there and then I copy and paste it here. And it's like, I'm touching every little piece of the recording so many times that it literally can't suck versus another person who's on the extreme opposite end where they just, they hit record, they hit stop, and then that's there and they never do anything else with it. And, and so those are the ends, those are the two ends of the spectrum and you can be mm -hmm. anywhere in between. And I was the psychotic obsessive person that was like willing to basically touch every single note, every single hit, every single piece of the production to make it be what I wanted it to be. And it was a lot of work and I was a solo operation for a long time. And it got to the point where it was too much. There was too many bands coming in and out. I was, I'd record a band like from, you know, March 1st to March, uh, to the end of March. And then like April would come and there'd be a new band. Like literally one band would leave the driveway and another band would come in. And it was like clockwork. And I didn't have time to even mix the other project that I just finished. So I had to start like actually getting people to help me and like hire people. And it, it just kind of grew into its own operation. And that's where I, I think I learned a lot of like management skills just because I was, I dived into the deep end. I had to do right. it. And, and it was, it's just physically impossible to do that much work yourself. Yeah. It was, the demand was so high that we were barely keeping up. We were turning people away and we were fully booked all the time. And on top of that, with help, it was still like that. And so we, we, we just really tried to tackle the problem at every single angle. It was, there was efficiency in terms of like, okay, I'm only going to sleep six hours a day. I'm going to um, always have somebody that's getting food for me so that I don't have to even leave my desk. Like I have, uh, you know, somebody helping to get me coffee. Like I have a person that's on another computer editing all day long and I'm on another computer recording all day long or vice versa. Like, you grow into your problems and you figure out how, how you can tackle them and you get the job done because the opportunity was there. And it was, that was the number one driving force the whole time is that I kind of compared my situation to my father, my father, you know, he had several different opportunities in his lifetime, but some of them he did not act on. And, you know, thankfully because he had me as a, as a child, but there's some things that, you know, when they come along, you just, you take them and you run with them because you're not sure if it's going to come along yep. in the future. I, that's how I looked at it the whole time. I was like, man, I got another band, another band, another band, another year goes by 10 more records. Like I'm not going to let this opportunity slip away from me. I'm going to do everything I can to pound this into the ground and just make the most of it. And I just did that year after year after year, anything that it took to get it done. And, um, and fortunately I got to a point where I was able to kind of put the brakes on a little bit, back up, and then figure out what to do from there. And, and so that's how it went down. I think that's such an important thing for people to hear because there's kind of this narrative that you hear from people that, you know, they think they can have their cake and eat it too. They think that they can have outsized success, especially in a creative field, and still have a chill life. And I think that's a fucking myth. Like, that's just... That's fucking stupid. Now, after you're established, you know, and you can be a little bit more choosy, like where you're at now. Yeah, maybe you have time to travel and stuff like that. But in, in the building phase where you're just trying to like make something of yourself and, you know, get get 
um, get to a place where you're just not desperate anymore, I, I think you have to work yourself to an extent that's almost unhealthy if you if you really want to if you really want it to happen. You know, I, I just think it drives me nuts. That there's people that think you can have a fucking chill life and also be like super successful. Like these, like you think fucking Elon Musk sleeps or sees his fucking family or like, I'm not saying that's healthy. I'm just saying that's reality. Like if you want to be Elon Musk, you're going to sign up to have a crazy life. Yeah. No, you can't fucking watch football. I, I can, I can promise you it was super unhealthy. I missed funerals, birthdays, holidays, all, all those things. And my family suffered from it. Um, I actually got really disconnected from a lot of my aunts and uncles and cousins because I didn't have time for it. And it's, I gave, I gave that time to the bands and to the record labels and to the music and to the work. And, um, you know, I would imagine your physical health probably wasn't great then either. No, it was horrible. I was smoking cigarettes. I was chain smoking cigarettes. I was drinking energy drinks. I didn't do drugs, thankfully. So that, that was, (laughs) at least there's that. Man, that saved my ass, man, because I, I watched people, unfortunately, I've watched people die. Um, and it kind of kept me away from drugs, really, to be honest, that like even one of the bands I was in, the singer of our band, he died from drugs. Oh, wow. And, and so when that happens at that point in your life, you're really touched by it. And you're really like, OK, that's something that I'm going to stay away from because I don't want that to happen to me. Because Imagine if your personality got channeled into drugs. <laughs> yeah, no. And, you know. You'd, you'd be like Walter White, you know? <laughs> exactly. Um, so I've, I've always stayed away from that. And, um, and, and so I'm thankful for doing that. And I, at the same time, you know, wherever there's great, I guess, success, there's also great sacrifice. I think that's kind of how it works. You know, if it's like you want to be a, a champion swimmer, well, you're going to, you're probably not going to eat donuts and you're going to be working out a lot. Yeah. Right. Like you're sacrificing one thing for another thing. And and so you got to pick and choose what those things are and what, you know, figure out what's important to you and yep. make that work for you. Um, I was just able to see the light so clearly. And it's not, it's weird because it's not something that I ever really set out to do. I did not want to be a music, the, the best music producer in the world. I didn't, that's not what I wanted to do at all. I actually wanted to make video games. I was started out as a programmer. I started making websites as soon as HTML started to become like, um, you know, more important on the internet and people were learning more about it and website technology was growing. I I was really into that. Even before then, before I even had internet, I used to have like a, one of those old Macs, the very first Mac that had a mouse Mm -hmm. and I would like, yeah. And I used to make, um, they had something on there. What is it called? Some, some kind of card, something card. Oh, hypercard. Hypercard. I used to. Hypercard was cool. Yeah, I fucked around with Hypercard a lot and I actually made my own video games in Hypercard and I had my friends come over and play. Did you Hyper- know Mist is made with Hypercard? No fucking way. Yeah. Whoa, I didn't Isn't know. Isn't that, that crazy? Yeah. And I, thinking about it now, you're like, oh yeah, I see how you could do that. No, and I used to make Mist style games. I would be like, here's the scenario. You're in a jail cell and like, you got to get out. And yeah. I would draw all the different angles i would draw the this angle that angle that angle and you had buttons you could press this button and it would turn you that way right right and you had to figure out how to get out of the room it was like a that's all missed is game game. yeah yeah i did the same thing i used to make card games and i would print i had like sticky paper and dot matrix printer 
I would print them out. I would cut out the cards. We would create our own magic gathering. And I used to play Dungeons and Dragons with my cousins. And we found ways to like create our own versions. And yeah, it was just like, you know, that's, that's what I grew up on. And uh, the computer really kind of guided me down this like, this like really technical nature to everything. And, and mm-hmm. so I got, uh, and, and you know, so uh, par- in parallel to that, I had my music, which was like, I was a drummer. I used to play drums in a lot of different bands. Um, I learned how to play guitar. I was a little bit of a singer, but I wasn't that good. And I would like experiment with making music, but the two really collided when it was, um, you know, it was like, couple of years out of high school, I had been working this computer shop job and I was fixing computers and I got really sick of doing that. And, um, and so I got to this point where I was like, okay, I could actually record like, you know, three days a week and make about the same, if not more money than I am working five days a week over here. So I'm going to quit this job and I'm going to start recording bands. But at the time, like I didn't know how a click track worked. I did not know how to edit. I did not know how to do it. And you know, the reason why I didn't know know how to do those things is because I couldn't accept the reality of the work. It was like, you know, I was like, how do they get their kick drum to sound that way? And what I ultimately figured out is like, you edit every single kick. That is how you do it. So if it's a millisecond off from when the bass guitar hits, well, you move one of them. Yeah, and I couldn't get myself to believe it. I was like, surely no one sits down and moves every single kick drum to get it just perfect. I mean, I could do that. I could do that for hours and it would turn out like that, but that's not what people do. They don't really do that. And and once I found out that they actually did, then I was like, okay, crack the knuckles, game on. And and then that's that's when it all started. And and, and then you actually, and then you created a whole other generation of people who had that same moment when they learned how you do things. Yeah. They're like there's no fucking way Joey does that. Wait. <laughs> That's what he does. Jesus. And you can hear it. You can literally hear it happening from the first product record to the second. You can hear the transit, the like, yes, there's a huge difference between those two. Yeah. And like the first record did not know how a click track worked. So all tracks were live. And when I was doing the double kick patterns, I had to go off of whatever spacing Daniel performed. Like, so if he, if he was performing and he had sort of like, his left foot closer to his right foot, um, like on average, then uh-huh. that would make you go like did it 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 instead of like did it did it did it did it did it. So you don't even really know what tempo those songs no. are. In. So I had to like take the second kick every time and shift it over a little bit, then skip one, then go to the second. Do you one. put like a tape measure on the screen? <laughs> yeah, no, literally, I, I exactly that. I would take a really, one, yeah, I would take one hit and I would figure out. What's going to sound pretty close to real to, to what it needs to be? And then I would yeah. hit it and, and change the length of it so that it was about the right space. And then I would take it and copy and paste it a bunch. And then I would use that as my reference. So that's your grid. That's my tape measure grid. And I then see. I would take the actual kicks and, and make them match that grid. It was That's so it funny. It took me a week just to get the kick tracks. And they were like, what's taking so long? Like, When's the album going to be done? I'm like, well, relax. I've, you know, just spent five days on the kick drums and now I'm about to go to the snares. And, you know, well, there's a lot less snares on the album. So, like, <laughs> so it's going to go a little quicker. And, like, that, that, was my, that was my thing. I was stuck in, in editing hell for, like, a month <laughs> doing that. It, it, it's interesting that I, I remember, so for anybody who's watching, Joey and I did a 
course together uh, at the company I used to work at, Creative Live, in 2015, I think, where we showed uh, all the stuff you're talking about. As far as I know, that's the first time you ever did like a course or anything like that, right? So that was kind of a big deal, I think, for people to to see that stuff. Um, and I, I remember one of the comments that I thought was interesting from somebody who obviously didn't really know who you were, the kind of stuff you worked on. Uh, they were like, this is really an editing course more than a recording course. And, and, and it's, it's true, but I, I think this person just didn't understand, you know, the reality of how modern metal production works that like the, the edit is, I mean, it, it, it is an integral part of the thing. Like you can't, you can't not edit that way if you want it to sound this way. It's true. And, and I mean, it's brutal I've, and it's painstaking, but I mean, that's what it has to be done. If you want everything to actually, be perfectly aligned. In, in my opinion, and this is an opinion that has been talked about and discussed and dissected and agreed upon in several contexts, but one, one being an important context, the Grammys, because I was, I've, I've served on several committees at the Grammys and I've had this discussion many times. In my opinion, in the DNA of metal productions, editing is part of the performance. Yeah, it is. It is. It's 100% part of the performance. It's part of what you're, what you're buying. It's part yes. of what you're hearing. It's part of what you want to hear. It's yeah. part of even the, from the inception of the song and the person that's sitting down on a couch and writing the riff in their head, mm-hmm. they're hearing an edited version of what is happening. Yes. So, you know, that was, it, it was almost like being another band member, really. You know, I, I was guiding the record to a place that was, was almost inhumanly like, like not possible, you know, but, but even just like the balance of metal now, like if you've ever been in the room with a person playing a live drum set, it doesn't sound like what a metal drum kit sounds like on a record. Like if you're standing in the room, all you fucking hear is cymbals. One of the first mind blowing things for me was when I, you know, I learned how to mic up a drum set, right? And I, I'm setting it all up and I'm pulling up the, the faders. That's what they call it. When you first get the signal going and you and it's coming out of your speakers, you're pulling adjusting up. the volume on every piece of the kit. Yeah. And you're, you're like, okay, like okay, I hear the snare. Okay. I can hear it. Yet the drummer's out in the room, just playing a random beat. You're pulling up the stuff and you're like, why does it sound so weird? It's because the microphone is an inch from the snare. Who, right. who stands that close to a <laughs> yeah. snare? That's not what happens when it's not what a snare drum sounds like. Oh, like, you're like <laughs> 20 feet away from it. So, yeah. like, I kind of when the the gear started clicking, and I was like, oh, like I need to put a mic on the snare drum so that I like it can be defined. But my snare drum sound is not going to come from that mic at all. It's going to come from these other mics that are right. Way, and and so you you start to learn little things like that and it's almost like common sense it's like super pragmatic but you know when you're reading about it online someone's like oh well you have to have a snare on the top or a microphone on top of the snare and a microphone on the bottom of the snare and the bottom mic has to be uh phase reversed and you know you need to balance those just right and it's like that's what i need to do to get my snare sound but then you realize that none of that really actually fucking matters and that's only like 10 percent of the snare drum sound Especially now when it's just going to be a sample anyway. Sample where somebody (laughs) sat down and perfectly tuned all the microphones to make it sound amazing. And then. Yeah. Well, that's why I think it's so funny that. And it it irritates me so much when people get pissy about auto tune or whatever. It's like everything about a recording is quote unquote fake. 
like that snare drum. That's not what a snare drum sounds like as a listener. It's, you know, it's X number of microphones blended and EQ'd and compressed in this way. That's like, there's nothing real about that. Now, I, I, we all agree it sounds better, but that's not like, there's nothing about a recording of any kind in any genre that's, you know, real. Um, and, and I just, it, it's interesting to people that people get so emotionally wrapped up in like auto tune or drums, like any one part of it. It's like, everything is fucking fake. It's, it's a different experience. Like you said, and everyone's buying into that. You don't want it to sound like a fucking four track, you know, in the middle of the practice room. Nobody wants that. There's the two. That's what a real band sounds like. Yeah. No, again, there's the two ends of the spectrum. If I go to a jazz club, I'm going to hear expert musicianship to the point where even the piano player is not just playing the part perfectly on time and the right notes and everything, but he's also controlling his own volume with how hard he's hitting the right right moments in the song. And likewise for all the other musicians. And that sounds so fucking amazing that you're not going to even be doing anything. You're just going to have the right places and it's all going to be balanced because that's what you do. Or like a singer songwriter song, you could just throw up one omni mic and it might and that might be all you need. Yeah. And It'd then be great. On the other end of the spectrum, you <clears throat> have a metal band where, you know, the guy needs to have like the right gain staging on on the distortion tone of his guitar. But now in a certain part of the song, his guitar needs to be three dB louder. There's nothing that he can do as a performer. He can't like play a little lighter or like right. turn the volume knob because that changes the tone. We need the tone to be the same. So you actually yep. need to have an engineer there to take that guitar tone and turn it down in order to accomplish that effect. It's in a different, it's a different effect and it's accomplished in a different way. And, and so for people to have this, this sort of organic bias towards like metal, like I just, I just don't think it's a realistic expectation. You know, it's, it's kind of like expecting the matrix movie to be all filmed and real. Yeah, and right. Exactly. It should be all practical effects. No, like, and of course, actually, they do a great job of practical effects. Most yeah. of the movie is, um, but for the things that are impossible to be practical, they they just can't be. And so yeah. that's kind of the same philosophy that I like to have. And I challenge any person. I say, like, all right, look, you can walk to Oregon or you can fly. <laughs> like, you choose, <laughs> you know. So yeah, you do it the real way, man. Use your right. own leg. Okay, go for it. <laughs> See you there in six months. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers, all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like 
dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use HyperFollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Uh, well, I want to talk about uh, JST and some of the other stuff that you've done because I think it's 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 really cool. I remember the beginnings of JST, as I remember it, and correct me if I'm wrong, was when you had that big cartel store back in, what, 2013 or something like that, where you were selling uh, samples, pod farm presets, and maybe IRs or something like that. And... Uh, as I recall, which are for anybody who's not familiar with recording, these are various like digital, you know, files that you would use in a sort of Joey style, like home recording kind of environment. Um, and as far as I recall, it's it was you and Cameron from Chango were the first two to really do that. Is any of that wrong? Or tell me about that. That's exactly what happened. Is that actually before Big Cartel? So Big Big Cartel came along and they, you know, made the the whole digital shop e-commerce experience like a, a available to small business owners. It's like and, Shopify before Shopify. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, I was actually I had a store online before that software ever even existed. And and I really do stress the importance that that was designed to sell T-shirts. And but we figured Big out. Cartel. Yeah, Big Cartel. Yeah, yeah. Like found a way to make it sell software, which was crazy. Right. Before I get to that, um, I used uh, a thing called Zencart. I remember that. Zencart was a a PHP software. So if you had like the typical um, sort of like, you know, HTML web server ran on like cPanel, you know, and you had like your... You, you would go into the, um, the the software and the cPanel software and it would be like, you can install these add-ons. So you had like a forum app, you had like, you know, these other apps and Zencart was one of those apps. What was the, what was it, uh, what's the PHP forum one? PHP BB. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could get yeah. Zencart and PHP BB. Yeah. 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 So that was one of those apps. It was Zencart, it was PHP driven. And um, that's what I actually started with. So I, I went on hostdime.com, started a, my own web server, figured out how to set it all up, read all the instructions, got my, my site going and installed Zencart, got that going. And I started selling drum samples. That was the very first thing that I did. And, and the reason why I did it is I was so obsessed with how I did my productions to the point that I had a drummer every time that we did a record I had the drummer sample the entire kit 
And I took all of the samples and I put it into my own contact instrument that I scripted and programmed myself just for me so that I could like have instant access to any single drum sound on the whole thing. So that if so I So it's like, oh, that rack Tom, he kind of didn't hit it that hard. Yeah. So I, I want to be able to get just the exact one. Like, boop, you know, and boom, there it is. <laughs> like, <clears throat> and it sounds exactly the same as the other recorded audio because it's all from the same session. I mean, we literally, re- we sampled the drums and then immediately started recording drums. And so it's all the same, like sort of sonic profile, if you will. And these <laughs> days, everyone and their mother has a drum library contact instrument. But back then, that was super cutting edge shit. Yeah. And I mean, I, we even went through um, all kinds of like growing cha- like growing pains with the changes of the software. They started to make it like different with how it worked. And then we had to like figure that out. But we kind of kept up with it and we were doing it just for ourselves so that it was like the whole team had access to this instrument and it could be used in any sort of way. Um, even if we were like in a situation where we we're like, okay, well, we finished recording drums and we can't really set it up again perfectly. Like it was right, right, right. We want to add like this drum part here. So like now we had the means to do so, um, because we had that instrument and it was like dead on exact as the rest of the record. Um, and, and I just one day, you know, I just had this realization. I was like, I, cause I have a hard drive just, just for all this stuff. And I was looking on this hard drive and I was like, there's all this stuff on here. <laughs> And like, it's never going to be used ever, ever, ever again. And I was like, what could I use it for? Maybe I could like, I don't know, maybe somebody else would want to use it. And I thought of it in that light. And that's what gave me the idea to start the store, sell the samples and on, and, you know, and then that led to, okay, well now I actually want to sell like my pod farm presets, but the way that I created that store, it was so drum driven. It was called Joey Sturgis drums. It was on joeysturgisdrums.com all the photos and everything. Oh, I didn't know that was first. Yeah, that was actually first. Oh, okay. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I can just open like a second store, but I really don't want to use Zencart because this thing is driving me crazy with how I have to deal with it and everything. So uh, that's when, I, I don't remember what year it was, but uh, let's just say 2012 probably because the store opened in 2013. So I, I did some research. I found Big Cartel. And um, then I started playing around with it and I found this other app called Pulley app. And so when I combined Big Cartel with Pulley app, it was the perfect marriage where uh, Big Cartel would manage the, the, the shopping experience and the orders and Pulley app would manage the delivery of the digital files. And they, they worked together, they integrated and they talked to each other. And those two pieces of software is what allowed me to launch the very first iteration of Joey Sturge's tones, which is, you know, like you said, we're selling those digital files to people who, you know, you had to actually have like a, uh, almost like a rack mount um, piece of gear that costs like $400. You had to have that to even use the very first files that I sold, but then the HD pod or whatever it was pod, uh, like 600 or whatever. It was yeah. Called. But then they then they created a, a piece of software called Podfarm, which then ended up being able to to load those files like just right into the plugin, and and that's when things really took off. And so, if you wanted to get, I don't remember exactly which ones you had, but if you wanted to get like the whatever, um, you know, IC Stars guitar tone or whatever, you could just go buy that from JST for what were they like twenty bucks or something? Yeah. 
Yep, exactly. And um, actually, I think I may even start it out with a higher price. $29 sounds about right. Yeah, they weren't cheap. Um, no, it wasn't cheap. And it was like one top, like one tone. You know? Yeah. It wasn't even like a pack of tones. And, and it's this, this is again, this is stuff everyone does now, but that, that was so like eye opening to me because, you know, back then I still thought that there was some sort of magic ingredient to that, you know, not, not that they weren't good tones, but I thought, oh, well, if I just buy this preset and use it, it's going to sound exactly like, you know, like I see stars, which of course it won't, but, um, just being able to have access to that stuff was totally unprecedented. I don't think anybody had done anything like that before because it was like a combination of your workflow because you were doing everything in such a purely digital way because back then, even as recently as like 2012 or whatever, that like there was still pushback on that. People still thought it was bullshit to do everything in the computer. At least some people did. So it was a combination of your workflow being completely digital the fact that you had close enough relationships with the bands the and 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 the label and everyone else that you were able to get their approval on that and that you had sort of the foresight and ability to create the storefront which nobody else did um i i mean you really created the template for this whole industry now of everyone and their mom selling their you know Kemper Axe effects drum samples i don't i don't even know what people sell now like do people sell like tone pack, like neural DSP presets. I don't know, but that whole industry, I mean, you really created that. It's so weird because I don't really know why I'm the Do guy. people know that? I mean, I think some people know it for sure. Uh, especially a lot of people close around me definitely know, but it's like, I think there, it's that same thing where you have people being born right now and the iPhone exists, you know, yeah. it's like, right. I came up in an era where that, you know, I, I played, I played capture the flag when I was like 12 years old. I didn't have, right. This, uh, <laughs> it's like, you know, the world's a different place. And, and, yeah. uh, but I just, you know, I was that nerd that was obsessed with the internet. I was obsessed with computers. And I knew that like, you know, as soon as there was cart software, I was like, Oh, hell yeah. Like, let's do something with this cart software. I want to do something with this cart software. And I had the first PayPal account, the first Gmail account. One of the I was on the beta for MySpace. Mm-hmm. I just always have sort of been in the right place at the right time in regards to that kind of thing. And um, it to me, it was actually almost like solving a problem because one of the problems I had was that like with so many people contacting me saying, "How did you do this? How did you do right. that?" I want and like my Twitter account was on fire, man. People were just blowing me up. Like I want to get that guitar tone. I want to get that vocal sound. And so that's what really gave me the inspiration to start all this stuff. I was like, you know what? Because I, I highly valued my time. You know, it was yeah. like, wake up in the morning, I'd, I'd be waiting for the band to wake up. And I'm like, how can I turn these hours into money? You know, because like, you know, I'm pretty skilled. And when I work, I, I want to get paid for it. Yeah. So instead of sitting down and like replying to every tweet and being like, okay, well, like, here's the instructions you need to like get this plug in and blah, blah, blah. I was like, I'll just sell this to people. Because mm-hmm. I don't really have a lot of time to do this for every individual person that asks me and I can actually kind of just hand them like the solution. And then, and then that just makes the whole thing easier. And it's just like a transaction. It's like, you know, you pay 20 bucks and here's the tone and go have fun. Like, and I don't have to explain anything to you. Um, Or, or if I do have to explain it to you, I can just write it in HTML and pop it on this page and boom, I just send you the link and you read everything that I wrote. 
good to go. And so that's kind of how it all spawned. One thing I think you did really, this is like a small detail, but I think it was super important, is that you were always very transparent about the fact that those tones were not like some magic secret sauce. Like you didn't promise, like, if you buy this tone, it's going to sound exactly like the record. I remember um, there was one of those forum posts you made where um, you, it might have been the first time that you posted that, like, your Pod Farm preset, the Cali Diamond Plate one or whatever. People were punishing you about it. And you were like, well, if you want it, here it is. But I'm warning you, you're not going to think it sounds good. Uh, and I was like, oh, he's just being falsely monitored. I downloaded it. And I was like, this sounds like shit. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, because you were like, look, I do a lot of EQ. I do it's about this, that, and the other. The mastering also makes a huge difference. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that was really smart, like very smart positioning. It's like, look, I'm not promising you anything. I'm just saying if you want the actual file I used, here it is. I, there's sort of two sides to that. And and one side is that like, I knew that, you know, nothing that I could ever give you would replace the, the decision-making process. Like you have to make decisions. It's like, imagine if a plane could fly itself, but you would never need a pilot because there's like, the pilot has to make decisions to, to in order for the plane to successfully take off and land and, and get to where it's going and doing it in a comfortable manner, right? It's the same thing with making a record. Like I can give you all the most amazing tools, but like, and even if those tools never fail, you're still going to have to make decisions. And so that's the first side of that coin, right? But the second side of the coin for me was like, I cannot imagine a scenario where somebody doesn't take this tone and take a DI and run a DI through it and have it like suck because like, I, this is what I do every day. Like I have different guitars coming through. I'm using all kinds of different equipment. I'm recording in different tunings. I'm recording, you know, right. these were tried and like tried and true and tested uh, like tones. It was like to the point where I, I, I didn't put those tones up just because I could. It right. was like, I felt confident about the tone to the point where I was like, I'll give this to anyone. And I guarantee that if they put it on their DI, it's going to sound pretty good. Yeah. Like now my comment about it, like me saying, hey, I bet you're not going to like the sound of this. That was me understanding that I kind of reached a point to where I realized that when when the mix is right and everything is working together, if, you, if you're soloing different elements, you're going to be like, like it's not, it's not going to be how you thought it would be. Exactly, like, exactly. You, know, you, you solo the snare and you're like, wow, that, that kind of has like a lot of trouble. But then like- right max the the whole mix in you're like oh it needs that trouble because yeah. it wasn't there then it kind of wouldn't it'd be kind of dull and wouldn't poke through and so all those decisions are captured in those tones or in in the presets that i made because there's all those elements like a great example of that to me is like my favorite recording that you've done you've done was about that life which to me is just like the perfection of the joey sound like just it just it slams so hard and just like the most aggressive, absurd, like version of that song possible. And if you listen to, there's a part in that, in the song about that life where there's just like a guitar part soloed, like playing a little chug riff and the rhythm tone actually sounds really thin and low gain. 
And then if you listen to it, it's because the bass guitar is louder than anything else in that mix. The bass guitar and the kick drum are loud as fuck. And it's because you don't need a bunch of low end and attack in the guitar because it's coming from the bass and the kick drum. Yeah, because if you have like, you know, you have a, a three minute song and it's all like, it's like, you know, you're really just balancing like the the amount of like distortion versus note because like the bass right. is like note and the guitar is like the distortion. And so like, do you the kick really, is the attack. Yeah, do you want to really hear like the, the, that distortion like the whole time, like super fucking loud? Not really, but you kind of still need it there because you want it to be like, you know, you want it to sound like a distorted guitar and you want it to sound like a rock band or a metal band. Right. Right. So, so like, you know, it's kind of really just a balancing act of, you know, um, what, what parts need to be the, the center focus and what are going to be like the least fatiguing to still make it sound like a metal album and a metal song. And, and, and you're right. Like, you know, you don't actually need like a ton of gain. You need a little bit of gain. Um, but the riffs that they're playing are not super technical. They're not Megadeth riffs. They're not right. Barry to me riffs. And so in, in that sense, it's more of like creating, you're creating like a wall of sound that moves in a certain way. And each part of it plays its own, you know, has its own role. And that's true for any other um, record, but like, it's just a different type of, of production. It's a different type of mix because you really are dealing with a ton of breakdowns. You're dealing with a ton of like rhythmic information and you're just trying to balance those, those tones and those sonics. Um, so yeah, that's, that's exactly why it was like that. What made you take the leap to make your own plugin, which I remember thinking that was crazy and there was no way you were going to pull it off. Um, but you obviously did. And that was gain reduction. What, or at least I think that was the first one, right? What, yeah. what made you get that idea? One thing I will say about myself, which I think is is true throughout and consistent, is that like I will never do anything that I don't think I can do. So if I'm going to start like if I start my own like um, airline company, I'm going to have to know how to fly the plane. I, I'm not going to just do it because I know somebody else that can fly a plane and trust them. Right. So. It's one of those things where like, you know, I, I stayed away from making plugins because I simply didn't know how to do it. Now I knew how to program. I knew how code worked. I knew how to write C++, Java, Visual Basic. I understood all kinds of programming languages. I've made websites, blah, 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 blah. I've even written, um, I, I used to write like my own DLLs for Windows. And oh, wow. Yeah. So I used to do some stuff, but it was like plugins were like this weird, almost like, off limits kind of thing because totally super complicated, you know, and it still is. It's a lot better now. Holy crap. It's so much better now than it used to be. But when we started, uh, it was not easy at all, but I found this software. And if I, if I remember correctly, it's called DSP robotics was the software. And I was able to figure out that like, okay, this software has a way to actually create almost drag and drop, plugins it's it was designed to create like robotic um uh controlling software so if you had like a robot and you hooked up a serial cable to it and you plug that serial cable into your computer you could write code to control the robot right you know the the individual pins you could control the voltage going into yeah. stuff like that that's what it was designed to do but because of that and and it being designed through and through and robust enough it, you were able to actually write vsts with it 
Hmm, and, that's um, random. Yeah, and and because there, there's kind of a simil- similarity to where the fact that you know VST is a um, uh, a, a platform that is well documented, right? And and you can get the SDK for free. Uh, this is no longer true. This is everything yeah. now, but back then it's how it was. And so like it was like a well documented free SDK that like you know so some nerd probably got in there and was like oh well I'll just like you know I'll put the VST SDK into here. Oh so, okay. Right. So like just in case someone needs it. Yeah. Just for fun. I mean, people want projects and stuff, right? Like what else? Yeah. Do? So that's, that's kind of how I started. I started playing around with that and I ended up figuring out like, okay, actually kind of can make a compressor. <laughs> like it's not that hard, you know, here's what, here's what a compressor does and here's how it works. And here's like the algorithm for it. And I started like, you know, getting in there and being able to tweak the variables and then I figured out how to take this the software I was using and I figured out how to like actually connect it to my DAW so that there was a loop. And so I could like press play on my DAW and the sound would come out of the DAW and go into the, the DSP robotics environment and get processed by whatever it was that I was playing around with and then come back out and then go back into the DAW onto another track. And so I was able to in real time hear how the code I was writing, uh-huh. I could write and I could hear how it was being affected in real time. It was for anybody watching or listening right now. By the way, this is like such a Joey thing. Like <laughs> yeah. this is this is why you were because you do shit like this. Yeah. That that people like me who are more quote unquote realistic would either think is impossible or a stupid waste of time. And like why like why would you do that? <laughs> But you, but you do it. Like I, I would just think that was dumb. You're like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just use a compressor that's already out there? And sometimes that's right. But you know, you're one of the rare people who has like these weird ideas. But you're also willing to put in the work to actually do it, even if it like you will find like I, I just know you well enough now that if you say you're going to do something, if you really want to do it, you're going to fucking find a way to do it. Yeah. Just period. It's going to happen. Like if you tell me that you want to start building planes, I would believe you now. Um, Literally the last thing that I just, I, I was talking to my content team before this, the last thing I said to them was because they, they have a roadblock right now. I was like, you got to fight to figure it out. You just yes. got to, you know, figure it out. Like this is and cool. is like this too. And I've learned from you guys that I just think of it as like, if somebody put a gun to my head and said, you either have to figure this out or you die, could I figure it out? The answer is yes. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I don't want to, but like the answer is yes, I could figure it out. It's a challenging place to put yourself in time and time again, but it, it starts to actually become a part of your your nature. And, you know, after doing it so many times, it just becomes a part of who you are. You know, you can do it. Maybe you might choose not, you might say, it's not worth it. Never mind. I don't want to, but like, you know, you could. Yeah. And a great way to get started is never focus on the problem, focus on the solution. So you're stuck in traffic. You got to get to work. Stop obsessing about, Oh, I can't believe that these construction companies are doing all this crap. And like, there's all these cars and they don't know how to drive. Like none of that matters because that none of that's going to solve your problem. Yeah. Focus on how you can solve the problem, you know? Maybe you'd be you like, can. Oh, I I I paid some kid with uh, a an electric bike to take me to work every day and I mounted a laptop on the back with this LTE antenna that I built so I can answer my emails on the way. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's you know, it that if that's the scenario you're in, maybe that's your solution. Like, but it's yeah, like a, a friend of mine who worked for Rob Deerdeck for years was commuting from San Diego to LA every day, which oh is horrible. And yeah. he he had an SUV built with like you know cell connectivity and stuff in the back with like a computer and everything so that he could like do work the whole time while he was getting paid somebody to drive him, you know, like yeah. that's, that's the kind of thing that you do. And I really admire that. And I, I think everyone listening to this who wants to do something, you know, that's the mindset you have to have is just like find a fucking way. Like even if it's like incredibly tedious and labor intensive and weird and dumb and kludged together out of bullshit, like find a way and then maybe you can improve it over time. But like, you just have to find a way period. Yeah. Find a way, fight for what you want, fight for what you need. Because like, uh, I, I I'm incredibly inspired by Elon Musk. I don't, you know, it's like, we're going to die on this planet. And like, he wants to find a way to not make that a reality. He wants to want to get out of that reality and recreate life on another planet. That's Dig tunnels. Super inspiring, man. And like, you know, so that's, that's like, uh, I just really don't mesh well with people who don't do that or don't think that way. Um, and it really, that's one of my pet peeves actually, is if I'm around a person or, or working with a person and they're like, uh, oh man, like, you know, this is going to have to take another week. I'm like, why? Yeah. Like, let's do it right now. Like, let's figure it out. So, you know. Um, I think that urgency is important. Um, and it's, it, it is what fired me up to kind of, you know, it, it all stemmed from the fact that I had a successful drum store. I had a successful plugin or, or not plugin yet, but preset store. And my friend called me up and, and he knew that I was kind of playing around with this stuff. And he's like, dude, you got to make a plugin. And I was like, no way, man, it's not possible. Like I'm, I'm kind of playing around with it, but I just don't think that I could actually go through that whole process. And what I ended up doing is, I did create a fully, I, I went into Photoshop. I designed my own user interface. I, I like spray paint. I use a spray paint tool and like all mm -hmm. that stuff. Right. And I created a U interface uh, for the compressor that I was playing around with. I, I slapped it together. I exported it as a VST a DLL file out of that DSP robotics software and launched it on my preset store at the time. It was the first plugin. And I did this from a dare. My, my friend dared me to make a plugin. I was like, no way. But then I ended up doing it. Right. So I launched that. That did really well. Now, the thing that's funny is that only worked for 32 bit windows and only for Cubase. But still, but still viable product perfect concept. Yeah. yeah. Concept, viable product, MVP. We talk about that all the time. Yeah. And so then um, it did well. And I was like, okay, where do I go from here? Like, I need to make this work on Pro Tools. I need to make this work on Mac. I need to make this work on Logic Pro, blah, 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 blah. So I ended up doing a, just a couple of Google searches and I found a guy um, who had his own plugin company and I didn't know what to expect. I was like, he's probably just going to tell me to fuck off, right? But I sent an email anyway and I was like, hey, my name is Joey Sturgis. I'm a music producer. I think I'm one of the first people to ever really actually make my own plugin. I haven't ever seen this done before. Waves kind of did it with other people, but they don't. Waves is yeah. Company, right. So I like pitched myself and, um, and I showed them like my store and I kind of was talking about some of the things that we were, we were doing and, and what my plans were. And, uh, he took it on, you know, it was actually interested, which was pretty cool. And that turned out to be a, a, a guy named Boz Miller. He has a company called Boz Digital 
and he makes his own plugins. He's very uh, smart, very talented guy. And that's how I got started. He, and basically we went on to make four plugins, the first four JST plugins ever, uh, game reduction, side widener, JST clip and sub destroyer. And so Boz created all those. And then, um, you know, I think it just became time for us to part ways because he kind of wanted to do more with his company. Yeah. And so we went from there, but, uh, that's how it got started. Yeah. Um, there's something I want to point out. I've mentioned this before to people, but I, I want to mention it again, cause I think it's really important. You do something that nobody I know does. I don't remember what it was. There was something that you figured out with the stream machine for URM years ago. I don't remember what it was, but we were like, how the, f-? I, I was like, how the fuck did you figure that out? And you're like, I read the manual and you know, just like, how did you find a developer? Well, you Googled. You know, and it's it, it seems like such a simple thing, but like that level of resourcefulness is something that's like weirdly rare. You know, that there's all the fucking information in the world that anybody could ever want. And yet people still want you to hold their hand. They still like ask, ask for you to wipe their fucking ass. Whereas I think so much of what you've done can be explained by just fucking Googling. How did you learn how to set up a uh, big cartel and and pulley and all like any of this, you just fucking Google it and then do what it says. It's not rocket science. I, or, I mean, sometimes it's hard, but like yeah. you start by just fucking Googling and it's, and reading the instructions. And it's so rare that like you do that. And so many people don't. It, it's, it's actually um, a reoccurring theme in my life. And I don't know if this is something that happens to other people. I would actually be very curious to, to kind of find out at least with the people that are here with us right now, how, how this is for them. But like, you know, when I had that realization and I was like, man, I guess I really do have to edit every kick. That's just how it works. I have the same realization, like even now in my life, like uh, I just got this new house and it gets really dusty and I couldn't figure out like why. And I was just like, I guess I just got to think through it. So like, okay, well, you know, you press a button and then a fan turns on and then it blows air. And like, where does that air come from? And so like, you start working through it and you're like, oh, well, I guess I just have to fucking clean the ducts. And then like, I got to like dust sometimes. Because if I don't, then there's just going to be dust there. Dust, like, yeah. you, you think that somewhere else, there's this perfect reality. It's like, well, like this other person's house isn't like ever dusty. So like, what? why yeah. different? Like, because they clean, they dust their freaking tables off and stuff and i don't do that and that's why right. my dusty. <laughs> you know like you just you come up with the it's almost like you're you're telling yourself like no surely it's not that way but then yeah you find out. and there must be a hack well maybe but maybe not i get to that place a lot quicker nowadays you know it's like i'm like surely it can't be that complicated no probably is probably is that complicated and that's yep. just and uh, i have to accept that reality and and work through it anyways and um, I think the faster you get to that point and the more you accept it and you just realize that nothing is really easy anymore, then you're going to be in a better place. Because if you're living this like sort of fantasy life where you think that like nothing requires work and that, you know, everything is supposed to just work a certain way. No, things fail all the time. Things break. Nothing's perfect. Like it yep. is like how it is. <laughs> yep. Great. Well, we got some uh, questions coming in here. Um First one from uh, It's Urka. Does copyright law have a place in music? Of course it does. We're living in a really interesting time period right now where copyright law is being challenged. Um, and, and the current laws that we're dealing with are pretty old and, and, in my opinion, kind of antiquated. 
And we are in a dangerous spot. We're in a pretty dangerous spot right now because there are landmark cases that are going to change the future of IP for music. And it's in, it's not in a good way, unfortunately. Um, one of the biggest ones was the uh, Marvin Gaye case and mm -hmm. they won. And that the precedence that that case set is that you can copyright a beat. You stole my vibe, bro. Yeah, and that's not good. That's not good because now if you use that beat in the same vibe in the same manner, you will get sued. And you imagine if somebody copyrighted crab core. Yeah. <laughs> don't uh, don't challenge me. To <laughs> don't give me any ideas. Yeah. <laughs> no, and then, and then you have also other things happening on a, a kind of on the other scale of intellectual property where you have these landmark YouTube cases. So reaction videos are now a large big popular thing thanks to ethan klein and h3 winning the case against mm -hmm. the guy and so like um i think just pay attention to these landmark cases because you know the the closer we get to saying okay all you need to copyright something is three notes that's going to get dangerous and uh that's not something that i want to be a, i don't want to see that happen man because it will really ruin a lot of things that that are great with music and music being so accessible and everyone being capable of, of essentially creating music on your phone, even if you want to, it gets scary, you know? And uh, I, I just hope that we find a system, a new system where we can kind of like all coexist and we can all, all create our own content that we want to create and not have to really worry about if it like is somebody else's. And, um, and so I'm not really sure what the solution for that is, but right now it is pretty bad and uh, and I hope that the the legal system finds a way to make it work. What do you this from Crimson Jimmy? What do you feel was your biggest mistake? What helped you identify it, and what helped you get over it? I don't know if it's a mistake. I had trouble trusting people, but I think that's a good thing. You know, I actually I do know my biggest mistake. I think my biggest mistake is that I got way too married to my projects too soon. Um, and I'm not saying to never get married to any of your projects, but if you are capable of doing that, that might be a good thing because you, you can actually work against yourself. You can get to the point where you believe that your ideas are better than everyone else's and that then you cannot take input and then it's no longer collaborative and then it becomes detrimental to the project. I definitely suffered from that a lot. It's a huge mistake that I made early on. Uh, I actually still kind of suffer from that day to day. Like we were working on a song the other day and I, I, you know, really believed so strongly in this melody. I got some pushback and, and sometimes I kind of like get angry about that and I get upset and I kind of, I, I have to like almost back up and be like, okay, you know, it's just one song. It's just one artist. It doesn't have to be my idea. And uh, that's a tough battle, you know, but I think if you can just think about what you're going to say and what it's going to mean a little more before you actually do it, because you can't undo something you've said, right? And and I think uh, I, I could learn from that as well. I could take my own advice. Um, I think that's important, but don't get too married to your, to your projects because they're going to change. Nothing's ever, you know, nothing's ever perfect. And none of us have a monopoly on all the good ideas in the world. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, here's a little bit of a, uh, a, a a shitty question, but I'll ask it anyway because I know people will care and I know you've gotten this question a million times before. How Joey feel about, so this might be from a caveman. They didn't say how does. How Joey feel about that one guy in chat who said the Sturgis style of production produced all the metalcore that wasn't good. You've heard this a million times before. What are your thoughts on that? 
uh, define good, man. So everything's subjective, right? Like, uh, especially when it comes to music and it's impossible to make it objective, you know? And so being a member of the Grammys um, and, and being on some of those committees really did kind of open up my eyes to the fact that everyone has a different perspective on what this art is supposed to be what it could be uh, what it should be right and and like nobody is right that is actually the beauty of it is that there's not a single person on earth that is ever right about anything in music because you can't be it's it's just an art form if everyone gets to participate in the way that they want to participate and you can say well it's right because so many people love it or you can say well it's right because it sold so many albums but neither one of those are facts they are just ideas. They're just concepts. And you either uh, agree to believe one or the other or both or whatever. And, and so to me, it's actually a very fluid thing because I can argue any song. I could argue why it's the worst song ever and why it's the best song ever. I can come up with all kinds of different reasons to explain why I feel this way or that way. And you can do the same. And so to me, it, uh, when people say that kind of stuff, I just, it's just fucking hilarious because I don't care. Like, it did what it did. Like the music came out, people listened to it. it. There's a certain number. I mean, you know, if you really could scientifically interview every single listener, you could find out exactly how many people listen to it. Maybe that's your idea of success. I don't fucking know. But to me, it looks pretty good, man. Like I don't sleep on a floor. I got a pretty nice house. Uh, all my Old friends, record hanging on the wall. Yeah. The friend, my friends are doing well. Like, you know, we're having fun. Things seem pretty good over here. So, you know, it, I don't care. Like, you know, I think we did something cool. Um, it happened. People know about it. It's historic. Whether you want it to be or not, I don't, it doesn't matter because it is, it just is. And, and so I don't know, fuck you. Like <laughs> <laughs> the armchair experts. Um, last question. Uh, is there any living artist or band that you would love to work with, but haven't yet? Oh man. Yeah. I don't know exactly who to say here. I mean, there's like a list, you know? I think give, it would, us, give us three. Okay. I, I think it'd be dope to work with Spirit Box. That's kind of obvious. I think they're kind of right up my alley. And I've actually pretty close to the band. And I've they've lived at my house when they were on tour once before. Um, actually, right when they were form, formulating what Spirit Box was going to be. I was a little bit a part of that discussion in the beginning. Oh, uh, I know that. I was supposed to actually produce a couple tracks and it just fell through the cracks um, because I, I just got busy with life. You know, I took, I, like I said, I took a step back and I didn't, I didn't like super pursue any projects. Um, so spirit box, number one, I think it would be so dope to work with between the buried and me. I just think that if we like took what they do and just like, I, like I almost don't even want to change anything that they do. I just want to take what they do and like put the Joey Sturgis spin mm-hmm. on it. I think that would be fucking crazy. Sub drops and yeah. the backwards symbols and the THX. Oh, and I'm sure that they would give me crazy parameters. They'd be like, well, yeah. this post this is supposed to sound like we're in an ocean. And I'd be like, okay, yeah. I'm gonna like that would that would be cool actually to to yeah. do all the cinematic kind of stuff that you do. Yeah. Um I think that would be cool. And then um I would really love to just work with like, you know, I, I it's such a joy to work with musicians that are like experts at what they do because you can just give them like 
adjectives and they will just go off. Like I, I used to, um, actually the guy that, uh, lived at the house of the garage that I used to rent to run the studio out of, his name is Jeremy Lovins. He's a guitar player. He's an amazing guitar player. And there was a couple of times that we crossed paths and I had to record some guitar parts uh, with him. And he's the kind of guy where you can just be like, Hey man, like give it to me like a little more on fire, you know, or like, Hey, can you like, make it sound more sad, but at the same time, like, I don't want you to slow down, you know, or like, mm -hmm. you just give them like these couple of like, like instructions and they're not like super detailed. I didn't have to be like, Hey, watch your 16th notes, dude. Yeah. And like pull back on the third bar. You don't have to say that kind of shit. Like you just say like, like, Oh, it's too happy. You know, and you're like, Oh, he made it sound more sad. That's yeah. wild. Boom. He just plays another pass. And I'm like, fuck yeah, dude. Like you nailed it. I, I love working with people like that. And so, uh, I think a place where there's a, a, an abundance of that is Nashville. So any kind of like yep. stuff, you know, people that are just like <laughs> singers who are just capable of like taking small direction notes and being able to do a lot with it. You there's know, actually, insanely good session players that can just play anything. Yep. I worked with uh, Lights once. Lights is a Canadian pop singer. Well, I don't know if she called herself pop, but that's like the easiest way to describe her, I guess. And um man, she's just like that. It's just like everything she gives you is so golden. And all you really have to do is just kind of figure out like, all right, what, what like, what words do I need to say to this person to like get the, <laughs> to get the, <laughs> the next take? Because like, I know it's going to be good, but like, what could I say to like make it a little different or better? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there it is. Cool. All right. Well, uh, I will let you go, but thank you very much for uh, making time for this. Uh, say hi to Kristen and everybody for me, and uh, I will talk to you soon. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that. And you can just sit at home, think about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music 
or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.